0: So we picked up, um, or left off, should I say, this last week in verse uh, 31. So that's where you want to pick it up, chapter 29, verse 31. And maybe perhaps we could title it, uh, this way I won't have to have, free to chase me when I'm in Israel. Maybe meet the family. We have, uh, we're going to go right to prayer, because some things are just so much more fun when you just kind of have it unfold in front of you instead of having read it once, although I do prefer that normally, but sometimes it's better to to kind of walk into it and have a bit more of a serendipitous surprise to it. So let's go right to the Lord in prayer and expect God to do great things. Father, you've told us, as the snow falls down to the ground, it does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands upon, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. So is your word. It never returns empty. And You've told us to meekly receive the inculcating of Your Word into us, the implanting of Your Word into us that's able to save our souls. And we do want, Lord, more than to hear, but we want to hear first. And so, God, we pray that You would give us, as You've told us in Revelation, ears to hear what Your Spirit would say to the church this morning. But, God, as You give us ears to hear, that You would give us hearts that are receptive soil, that are weed-free, that aren't shallow, that aren't full of rocks or pavement, but rather, God, fertile soil for the planting of your word. And God, then in it you tell us, it isn't blessed are those who hear it, but blessed are those who hear it and do it, James tells us. So we want to do it, which would be strange as we look at this chapter and some of the wild things. I know there are things in this you're not telling us to do. But Father, in this we are praying that what it is that you want us to learn this, this morning or this afternoon, God, that we would, we would learn. God, that we would be more than just gathering information to be fat and lethargic in our faith, but rather, God, you would inject into a spiritual B12 that we would have the energy, Lord, to live out the very calling you've placed on our lives. So, God, I pray simply that if there be anyone here who is simply a sinner at this moment, that this would be the morning of their salvation, and they would go from sinner to saved in this very time. I pray for everyone who is saved that have said yes to the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross as payment for that sin and resurrection to offer us a new life, that we would move from saved to student and that we would become this morning or this afternoon, that we would become students of Your Word, but more important, students of God. That we wouldn't just be experts in information, but that Your Word, Your active and living Word would live through us as John told us about the young men that are strong because Your Word lives in them. So God, I pray that your word would manifest in us, but God, as we grow as students, move us from students to servants, that we would become people who want to take that information and do something with it. And I pray, Lord, for all of the obstacles we've placed there, that you would remove them this this afternoon. God, that we would trust that your gospel really is the power of salvation, that your Holy Spirit is still the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And God, that we who plant in water are water, no, There are no ones. But it's you who brings the harvest. Then thank you for that. So God, in this time, you know where every one of us is. So God, I pray that you would speak. And that you would speak to each one of us individually at our heart of hearts and in our minds. That our very spirits would be transformed here in this room. God, that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds, that we would put off the old man, we would put on the new, the one that looks like you. I pray for myself that you would immerse me in your spirit, absolutely baptize me, that I would completely disappear, and Jesus, that they would see you. That all of us this, this afternoon, all of us, more than just getting information, will encounter you in a fresh, in a real in a transforming way. And God, I thank You for the privilege of this time. Redeem every second. Every second redeem, I pray. I pray for refreshment. I pray for challenge. I pray for exhortation. For for the unruly to be warned. For those who are rebellious to to be challenged. For those who are discouraged to be encouraged. Strengthening the weak. But that every one of us would be greatly encouraged in this time. That we would fall in love with the God who has fallen in love with us. That we would learn to delight in your delight. And that we would learn to celebrate the God who celebrates us. So I commit this time to you every moment of it. Have fun now. May we have fun in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen would say this morning, afternoon, it's so hard to figure out what time it is sometimes, uh, that don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true. Search the scriptures, let the Bible always have the final say. Let the Bible always be your authority. Here we are now, we're in the book of Genesis chapter 29. And let me put things a bit into context as we jump into this text, starting with these simple words in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. That's how this starts. It's been over 60 years, I remind you. 60 years since a fairy tale, since the Cinderella story occurred in Padamaram. You see, up in the area of Syria, one day a girl went to a well, as she went every day, the stone pitcher to bring water to the house. There's no plumbing. Your plumbing is called your children. My children should be thankful. And she goes down to the well, and she goes down to the well. She meets a man. He's obviously not from around there, and he has ten camels with him. Now, understand, a camel in those days was basically a Humvee. And that was, I mean, the camels were not easy to come by, and they're certainly not cheap. And they drink a lot, 250 liters. And he has ten of them. And she sees this man at a well, and she says, you look thirsty. This is a loose paraphrase. Again, don't just believe me. You look thirsty. Why don't I get you some water? And he's smiling. And she gets the water, and she says, why don't I give your your, water some, your, waters, your camels some water, too? Because I was, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if I had to haul 2,500 liters up a well? And she does. They have traveled, though she doesn't know it yet over 500 miles, over 850 kilometers. And so she just offers it, and all of a sudden, the next thing you know, she's got a ring on her nose. Gold. Real gold. She's got bracelets on. Gold. Real gold. And she finds out that this man is a servant and a distant family member. Well, not too distant. Shortly thereafter, that girl will leave and she will leave and not be seen again in this, in this household. One day she woke up, an average girl carrying a pitcher of water, carrying a pitcher full of water, and she came home that day wealthy. And then she left because there was a groom that was dying to meet her. it was a Cinderella story over 60 years ago. How do I know it's over 60? Because that girl gets married to Isaac. Iskach left her. And then twenty years before a child is born, and there are twins Yaakov, Jacob, and Esau, Harry. So it's Prince Harry and Prince Jake. Now, Esau will be married after 40 years. And we have that before our text. So 20 years before the children are born, 40 years, and then he's married. And again, they're twins, so that's 60 years. Somewhere Later than 60 years, another girl goes to a well. Now as this girl goes to the well, she's a shepherdess. Oh, and she's fine. We read that she's got a pretty face and she's fit. And she comes in with a sheep and a total stranger is there as well. And this stranger rolls away the well, the stone, uh, the stone of the well, which, by the way, is a bit culturally insensitive. Sense at that moment, everyone's supposed to gather before it happens. But nonetheless, the, the stone is rolled away. He gets water for her now, kisses her, and then begins to bawl his eyes out. And you have to imagine this girl says, this probably doesn't happen every day. She's cute, but chances are that's a new approach. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm a relative. And I wonder in her mind if she starts thinking, oh, yeah, Cinderella story, Cinderella story. That was, well, that was this boy's mom. Come to my house. Come to my house. So off he goes. Now, she doesn't know why he's left. I mean, as far as she can tell, perhaps, he's going and scouting for a girl. And he's over 40. He's married. It's about time he got married. You can tell the parents are kind of looking at him saying, you're 40, you're still living. You should get married. But there's more to it. Jacob is fleeing for his life. His brother, and I love the way it's written in Scripture, says, your brother comforts himself at the thought of killing you. Now, which one of you actually likes a family member like that? You know, I go to sleep at night, I really can't sleep, and then I think, ah, I'll kill my brother. Yeah, that. Good night. And which one of you thinks that way? Hopefully not my brother. Anyway. And I must say that there's been interesting times with Sam and I, because we've had a, a brother in between us, And I remember when we first came to Chico, and and our our brother in between us, um, he was a bit of a rebel. And I remember we'd be in these big circles praying, and my brother would be praying, as as my pastor, he'd be praying, oh, God, and get my brother off drugs. And I'm like, yes, God, Mitch, Mitch, God, yes. As people are kind of looking over, not me, that's over. See, Jacob had already received the birthright, and with the birthright came the blessing. That's why we have problems, if you read that, going, I don't get this whole birthright blessing thing. To be honest, it's because it was being invented in front of them in a weird way, because the, the blessing came with the birthright. The birthright is, is the oldest, you get an extra measure of the inheritance, you are the responsible for carrying on the family honor, the family name, the family occupation. Those are things that are fundamental. And so with that, you get the extra blessing because that blessing gives you the authority. The blessing is the authority for which the birthright gives you responsibility. That's kind of the idea. And God is really big on this equilibrium between authority and responsibility. Both must be even. But when Jacob has already received the birthright, but the father wants to bless his oldest, which is Esau, his twin brother. Jacob has to dress like his brother. He doesn't have to, as a matter of fact. But it is mom's idea, the one who came from that well. But the interesting thing is what mom said that puts this whole thing into action. Obviously, at this point now, brother wants to kill him. And mom says, go to my family in Haram for a few days, few days. Which is interesting because that's 500 miles to get away for a few days. That's like saying, why don't you go to the moon for a couple days until your brother cools off because he's still comforting himself with killing him. So off he heads. En route to all of this, Jacob encounters personally the living God. He encounters him as the one for whom heaven and earth are connected. And there Jacob says, this place, this place is where God's house is. And God says, look at, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bring you back. I will take care of you. I'll protect you. This land, I'll give you this land. Your descendants, I'll give you descendants, which means you can't kill me yet. I don't have any kids. How am I supposed to have descendants? I obviously have to live until I have kids. I'll take care of all that. Jacob responds with a vow. First vow in Scripture, silly thing. But then that tends to be the deal, by the way, with most of us, that we want to make deals with God, is if we have anything to bring to the table. Think about it. they would be like my children trying to bargain with me. Anything they own, I probably bought them. Dad, I'll give you this. I'm like, I didn't want it when I bought it for you in the first place. <laughs> Consider that fact. But Jacob says, alright, well, here's the deal. If you protect me and you don't let my brother kill me. Loose paraphrase, checking on your own. If you don't let my brother kill me, you actually get me back home. And he's on his way out still. You get me back home so that I don't die. I tell you what, you can be my God. You can see God going, wow, that's a relief. Thank you so much. And I'll give you a tenth. You can see at that point, God's like, well, that's just wonderful. Tenth. Put that in my account. You've made deals with God like that, right? Have you ever told God you'd never sin again? You ever try that one on him? As if God were to come to the table and go, Well, as long as you're bringing that to the table, whatever you want. As if God didn't know. Isn't it amazing how we can lie to ourselves? And we could be convinced that we could really offer that? And I know this, and I watch this with my children. Dad, I mean it! And the more, the mean it, I know that that's, you know, and, and I think, oh God, i probably look just like that when I talk to you. So Jacob has made his way to the house. A day passes. No letter from mom. Another day passes. Another, no letter from mom. Another day passes. Now in the culture, you, you can stay in anyone's house for three days. That's common courtesy of hospitality fourth day, you should start working. You should do something. And we don't read that there's a fourth day in this, but we read there's a month. Now it's a month. No letter from mom. No word from mom. Brother's still probably going to kill you. That's probably what you're thinking, right? No letter from mom. And finally, this girl's dad says, you've been here a month. You should work. Now he says it this way, come on, your family, your family, you should work. <laughs> and it's still you should work. Name your age. This man has two daughters. The older one's name is Leah, which means tired. That's, this is my, my older one, tired. And this is my younger one. You, like little lamb. Ironic, the little lamb was a shepherdess. Jacob says, I'll take her, I'll take her, I'll take her. That's what I want, I want her. And for seven years he works. This will become, by the way, a standard that one of the ways a man can get a bride is to work. By the time that we get to Jesus' day, by the way, it's halved Because of this story. And I think it's a bit inhumane to work so long for a person. Three and a half years. One of the three ways you can get a bride. One is, the second is to redeem your ignobility. In other words, you've been dishonored and you've been brought back to honor. And the third is to buy you out of your debt. Are you aware of the fact that the greatest groom that ever lived did all three? Is he did everything to purchase you? Well, with that in mind, seven years have gone by, and in those seven years, it's time. Now remember, Jacob had dressed like his older brother, which included putting fur on. which shows how hairy the brother was while dad's eyes were dim. And now Jacob's about to see what that feels like. As on the wedding day, you're probably aware of it. I don't mean to sound gross, but on the wedding day, you go into a thing called a chupa, which is basically a ceremonial tent where the man consummates the marriage with his wife. Chances are he might be a bit on the uh, inebriated side. and Nonetheless, in the darkness, in the cloak of darkness, Leia is brought in. Tired is brought in. And I can't imagine what it would be like for dad to tell Leia this information. Honey, I Ain't no one going to marry you. And there's this man. And you know the story. Remember that Cinderella story over 60 years ago? Don't you want to be married to this man? And I find it really interesting because Leia really seems to be, if you'll pardon me for saying, a much better catch in a lot of ways, at least in regards to the information we have of the two people. Because she really is someone who tends to mention the Lord in a lot of ways. And really what we're going to find tonight, well hopefully it won't be that long, at least this afternoon, we're going to find is her real desire is something that probably every one of us can relate with. Rachel, on the other hand, appears to be if you'll pardon me for saying, a bit of a well, you'd expect the younger, cuter daughter. What does that mean? Chances are, my first image gets painted a girl a bit spoiled that's been able to smile her way out of a lot of things. And we'll find a bit like that. She'll be the one that'll steal Dad's household gods. We won't find find Leah doing that. Well, with that in mind. Imagine the next morning. I mean, here is Jacob. He thought he had worked seven years for the younger, cuter one. And he wakes up. Oh, what a beautiful. I'm so glad to be here. And there he is tired. Who wants to wake up with tired? How would you feel if you were Leah? And this man wakes up, looks at you, and with this look of abject disappointment, He is so sad that you are wearing his ring. I know people that have been like this. They've been married and somehow on the day of their honeymoon, first day the husband looks and says, this was a mistake. What a great story for such a person, but for all of us. And then he has to go back and say, you ripped me off to the dad. And the dad says, well, you know, funny, that, that uh, we probably just didn't tell you. We just split my mind. Truth be told, we actually honor the firstborn here. It be an interesting thing for a boy like that to hear. So the first one has to get married first. Well, do you want the second one too? Oh, that's right. Well, you can work seven more years for that. So seven more years he works. In seven years, that's 14 years. In those 14 years... Rachel has been the object of his desire and Leah has been overlooked. I'd do like that for 14 years. And yet God is not left her alone. And that's where we're at here. Now, ultimately, they'll be there 20 years. Well, I remind you, Mom said a few days. 20 years, a few days. That's a big difference. And so in verse 31 we read, now he's married to both, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. and the New King James, there's only two texts. I don't know if you're aware of this. There's only two texts that actually use this word, unloved. The word for what it's worth is sane, and it's the word that means hated or odious. But the two times that the New King James uses it is exclusively in this chapter here and one other place. Go to Deuteronomy for a moment, chapter 21. If you're new to the Bible, it's the fifth book of the Bible. Chapter 21. Goodbye. Deuteronomy chapter 21. These are the only two places the New King James defines the word as unloved. And this is the verse, three verses. It starts in verse 15 and it says this. If a man has two wives, one is loved and the other is unloved, and they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him the double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. That's what we read here. And you have to start to think that had to be written specifically because of this situation. If you don't believe that, if you can flip to First Chronicles, and I won't have you flip a great deal, but if that's relatively new to you, you can just listen and mark it down. First Chronicles 5, one. it says this. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph the sons of Israel, so that the genealogy Well, so the genealogy is not hated according to the birthright. According to first Chronicles five, Jacob bestows the first right, the firstborn right, to the oldest of the loved wife. Well, God says don't do that. And I love that one thing that tells us is just because it's recorded in Scripture doesn't mean God endorses that behavior. Does that make sense? And there are people who say, well, look it, this happens here. Why, should we, why shouldn't we do it? And you think, well, how about Judas hung himself? Shouldn't do that, right? It's amazing how someone will actually say, I can sin because I look at this particular text, but then they won't read the ones about sacrifice. Back in our text. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. Now that may mean little to you, but it tells me two remarkable things. The first thing is that childbirth is a gift of God. And I can tell you, to have children is a gift. In our fellowship, we have a few on the way, on the tarmac. Very excited. But I remember what it was like. My first Israel trip, the day before I left, my wife gave me one last present, the 26th of February, Boxing Day. December. Hello, thank you. <laughs> Boxing Day. See, I knew what it was. It was yeah. And she gave me a box on Boxing Day, and in that box was a strip with a plus on it. I was on my way To Israel, and this is what she gives me. I always knew that the Lord would give us children when he wanted. But I do understand that give me children or I'll die thing. I love you, honey. But I remember the first time I held that precious girl in my hands and thought, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. And I think to this day, that our feet aren't two ridiculously different sizes. That our legs are relatively the same length. That our eyes work at all. Our ears, for some of us, even more of a miracle, still work. And then he invented our eyes, and then invented color, and our noses invented sense. Invented our mouths and invented Thai food. <laughs> ears and song. This is a god of pleasure. What an amazing god. An amazing god. Well. That's the first thing. But the other thing is that in that culture having children is synonymous with dignity. It's a shame when a married woman... Matter of fact, the whole idea they'd say of a woman to get married is to provide an heir and a spare. Perhaps you've heard that here. It's important to have a couple children because you want to make sure that name carries on. And so here is God in His first act of seeing this woman unloved. The first thing He seeks to do is restore her dignity. You find that interesting? I do. I can't help but think of a woman in John 8, caught in the act of adultery, thrown before Jesus, and the first thing he seems to do, after making clear to everyone that everyone deserves punishment, and nobody is innocent, is he restores her dignity. Now let me ask you something. Christians, when you came to Christ, Are you aware that's one of the things he did? Or do we still grovel as if we were still miserable, rotten sinners because we think that that's showing God we're grateful? There's a big difference because he tells us where there is much forgiveness, there is much what? There is much love. And love is different than just acting like, I'm such a miserable worm now, isn't it? Interesting because we could actually berate ourselves the whole time and be convinced that we're doing something amazing and what we're really doing is just being stuck on ourselves. When God restores your dignity, well, let me say it this way. Having played American football and being a wide receiver, that's the guy that catches the ball and then gets clobbered by big men. If you catch the ball fairly well, they get meaner. And when we'd play, well, if it was warmer than zero degrees outside, I'd be in a pair of short pants out there playing. And I remember what it was like because if you catch well, they don't like that. and Being thrown into the trees. Now, Christmas trees are beautiful to smell and to hang things on, but they're terrible to hang from. Very prickly, and in the colder weather, not very fun. And then you're covered in sap. You smell good, but you can't even bend your arms. Now, when you play on a day like that and you are covered in mud, I mean covered in mud, covered, and you think, well, thats I earned something. Right, look at me. I, clearly, I played the game. Isn't no one going to ask, you, 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 have you played yet? You look like the creature from the Black Lagoon when you come walking in. Now, in a moment like that, if you were going to do something filthy, that's an easy moment to do it. That's the moment to take out the garbage. That makes sense. But you jump in the shower and you're completely clean, all of a sudden that dirty stuff doesn't look as attractive anymore. If the enemy can convince you that he really hasn't restored your dignity, you'll probably run back out into the same things that made you lose it in the first place. But he's cleaned you. As a matter of fact, what he tells us is that you were once children of wrath. He actually tells us that we were people deserving hell like everyone else, but we were washed. You remember that word, right? Washed. Philippians says we were bathed in the blood of Christ. Bathed. The nice thing about a bath is there's no spot that water doesn't get to, or in this case, the blood of Christ. No spot of your life that the blood of Christ hasn't covered. No spot. Even the things you think God still bummed about. He's washed it. What would happen if we took a hold of that and lived that way? Well, we haven't gotten any of the children yet, have we? He opened her womb. Rachel was barren. The hot thing? Barren. Verse 32. Now, we're going to read the first four of 12 children. Actually, 12 children in this chapter. One will be a girl. The first four will all be born. Ultimately, this girl, Leah, tired, she'll live up to her name. She'll actually have half of the kids, half of the boys. A six-pack of children just from this woman. Verse 32, it says, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Ruv'en. Would you say Ruv'en? Now come on now, you can't say Hebrew like that. Ruv'en. There we go. Now, Ruv'en, Ben means son. Ru means behold, observe, see. The first name is behold the son. That's the first name. And of course, that makes sense. Now, understand, when this girl is pregnant, she wants a boy. Because a boy means the family name gets carried on. She'll have the privilege of giving birth to the firstborn boy. That's the one that's going to carry on Jacob's name. And she goes, oh, there's no no sonogram. There's nothing like, oh, you can have, I think that's a boy. Nothing like that. I mean, in those days, it's like, "Whoa, kind of hanging high, you know, all those things, kind of hanging, I think that's probably a girl, "Whoa, kicking on the right side, that's probably a girl, you know, those kind of things. But when when that boy boy comes out, she's like, yes, it's a boy! Yeah! A boy! Behold the son! And look at her response. Here's her statement. The Lord, notice the first word that comes out of her mouth. The Lord has surely looked upon my affliction now, therefore, my husband will love me? Wow. The reason she got pregnant because all she really wanted was her husband to love her? We're going to find that standard's going to drop before these 12 children are born. So she calls him, Behold, a son. Notice she says, The Lord has looked on my affliction. Verse 33 She conceived again and bore a son, and she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved. So He has therefore given me this son also. Guess what? I not only have the heir, I have the spare. So she called his name Shemaon. Could you say Shemaon? Shema, perhaps you're familiar with what the word means, hear, like hear O Israel. On Shemaon means by hearing, or to hear. She conceived again and bore a son, She said, now look at this. This time my husband will become attached to me. She went from my husband will love me to maybe he'll be attached to me. Now, people can be attached to you and not love you. And she is dropping her standard. Because I have borne him three sons, so she called his name Levi. Would you say Levi? Levi means to be attached or to be unified, to come together. Now, 35, she conceived and born now. This is number four. She said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Would you say Judah? Judah, Judah, by the way, perhaps you're familiar with, is where the term Jew comes from today. Judah means with praise or to praise. She says, now I will praise the Lord. The Lord has looked on my affliction You've seen that I'm loved. Now I will praise Him. Why? Listen. Behold, a son, by hearing, will be attached with praise. Today you realize you're hearing. And what you're hearing about ultimately will be one son this will end up with. And that one son seeks to attach you. Attach you to what you've been disconnected to, which is all of the Father who's created you to be with Him. And he did it by paying for you on the cross. And I would like to say to you today behold the son. And that son has heard. But you now, he wants you to hear that you would be attached with praise. Because the Lord has looked on your affliction, but you are not in love. Now, Rachel's a little upset. Chapter 30, verse 1. Rachel saw that her sister Jacob, I'm sorry, that she bore Jacob no children. Rachel envied her sister, and she says to Jacob, notice this statement, give me children or else I die. Some of you men are holding back your laughter only because your wife is next to you. Here's the ironic thing. Rachel will bear two children, and the second one will kill her. She'll die in childbirth. What she really could have said is, give me children and I'll die. And that would be actually more true. The Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld you from the fruit of this womb? Now understand what he's saying. He's going, honey, let's just check things out here for a second. Ain't no problem with me. That four ba- babies are popping out of that tent with no problem. No problem over there. But here we got some issue. You really think the problem is me? Which, by the way, I can't imagine Rachel would like to hear. But then, she's in good company. That's Sarah, remember, who also had such issues. And for that matter, so did her daughter as well, her daughter-in-law as well. So, verse 3, it says, Here is my maid Bilcha. Would you say Bilcha? Bilcha means timid, and she seems to be actually living up to her name. Go unto her, and she will bear a child on my knees, so that I may also have children with her. So she gave him Bilhar, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. Now, his grandpa, Abraham, if you remember, had a situation where his wife said, Why don't you try my servant? And that didn't work out so well. You'd like to think someone would have learned by someone else's mistakes. Oh, no. Because Jacob here, you know, he's following one good scripture. In Philippians, it says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That she would actually be a faultless and harmless child before this perverse generation. Well, he doesn't seem to be complaining here that girls are getting thrown into his lap. Actually, literally here. Now, where does she come up with this crazy idea? She comes up with it from the secular world. You see, in 1772 BC, so before this time, there was a leader among the Babylonian people named Hammurabi. Perhaps you're familiar with her. And he came up with a set of codes. And in these codes, there are 282 laws. Now, half of them were basically in the issues of of contracts, how you must sort of fulfill your end of the bargain. It was actually the laws of Hammurabi that give us things, even to this day, of some of the jurisprudence that we know of. Also, by the way, of the issues of insurance come from the laws of Hammurabi, for what it's worth. It also is where we get the idea that you're innocent until proven guilty comes from the laws of Hammurabi. But in these, and the reason that I'm most familiar with this is because there's a two-and-a-half-meter copy, but the actual original is in the Louvre. But there's a copy. Of it. it looks like an index finger. Not like this one, but like this one. And um, it's basically two-and-a-half meters tall. It's about seven-and-a-half feet tall. And as it is, this big finger, and it's actually written on it, this steel. It's not like steel from where this is written. Now, it's interesting because the other one of those, by the way, one of those two copies is at the University of Chicago. That's how I'm familiar with it, at the Oriental Institute that's within it. But on those laws, there was the law of surrogate motherhood. And the idea was simple. If you had a couple slaves and you were barren, you could have a slave get pregnant by your husband. The child would be born on your knees and it would be almost as if the baby came out of you. That was kind of the idea. Now, that wasn't God's idea, but it was this guy, Hammurabi's idea, and those that were with him. So she takes this secular idea and brings it in and says, you know what? Here's my girl. Now, she must be something really to to, to look at because interestingly enough, remember, four children have already been born. You remember that. And I remember when Chante was about three, we used to sing this song. R is for Reuben, S is for Simeon, L is for Levi, J is for Judah. She could walk you through all of the 12 tribes in order. But I, interesting, the oldest one, again, is Reuben. Well, the interesting thing that I find about it is that Reuben himself will ultimately wind up sleeping with Bilhah. And that would be that whole situation why he loses the right of the firstborn. So this particular girl, timid, who has, by the way, will have two children. Just basically, if you think about it, it's his stepmom. That's pretty sick. Now, nonetheless, am I in the place of God? So here's my, my, my girl Bilhah. Verse 5, Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged my case. He has also heard my voice and given me a son, and therefore she called his name Dan. Now she makes claim to this child, and Dan means judge or judged. Interesting, one thing you'll find out about Dan is that Dan will be the guy that there's all kinds of questions and controversy about. He'll be the one that, according to the, uh, the minor prophets, will say he was the father and pioneer of bringing idolatry into the northern area. To this day, we'll go to Tel Dan, an area in the farther north of, of Israel, and you can still see the replica of the altar of where they used to offer to the golden calf back in the days after the kingdom split after Solomon. And Dan becomes the northern area of it. By the way, does anyone know the one, the most famous Danite, other than Dan? Let me give you a hint. He's kind of strong. Samson. Samson was a Danite. Now, also, for what it's worth about Dan, if you look at the tribes in the area of those 144,000 in the book of Revelation, the one tribe that's missing is Dan. And there are some that will tell you that's because, actually, that's from where the Antichrist comes. I won't tell you that. But just the same because they actually wound up getting land at the end. So that tells you something. Verse 7, Rachel's made Bilhah conceived again. Now I wonder what it would be like to be Rachel at this point. She's the hot thing, but she can't have babies on her own, so she's going to do this bouncing on the knee thing. And with that, she says, now notice, by the way, her motivation. My great, with great wrestlings, I have wrestled with who? You tell me, out loud. My sister. You got that, right? So here it is. Leah is giving up all of this, wanting to have children for who? What's her purpose? You tell me. Come on, you got it. Her husband. She just wants her husband to love her. Rachel, on the other hand, she's just trying to get back at her sister. And understand, it seems like Rachel's kind of always been better than her sister at things, and Rachel really wants to make sure she stays on top, and she's not at this moment. So, I wrestled with my sister, and so with that, we're going to come up with the name, and the name again is Naftali, which means my wrestling And it's interesting because what you have then is judged by my wrestling are the two titles given to the daughters or the sons, I'm sorry, of Bilchah. Now, the most important thing and the most famous thing you'll know about Naphtali, for instance, though, uh, for what it's worth is it's the area known as the area of the Gentiles. And we know that because it's the prophecy that we're given that the area of the Gentiles is where in which the Messiah must come. And that's what we read, Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, with that in mind then, take a look at where we go from here. Leah saw that she had stopped bearing. Remember, she has four children. You'd think that would be enough. So Zilpah took her maid and gave her to Jacob, his wife. She says, well, if it worked for her, it works for me. Now, how would you feel at this point? Now, there's got to be a point, guys. I mean, I know some of us are raised on MTV, so we think that this is probably a dream come true at the beginning of it. But I don't know. But the, I, well, There's one thing. Mary and two sisters is insane. There's just no right to that at all. I mean, granted, you think I only get one mother-in-law out of it, but the bottom line is you do not want that kind of sibling rivalry. And that's what we find throughout this whole chapter. I read this with my daughters, and boy, you could see them. They are almost got in fights just talking about it. So Leah stops, and so she says, well, take my wife. Her daughter's name is Zilpah. Remember, Zilpah means to trickle like a scent. And she says, look, a troop comes, or in essence, the term God And means crowd. And she's like, look at the crowd we have now. That makes number seven. Leah's made Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. She says, I'm happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. I have four of my own, two adopted, so to speak, and so we name him Happy. Asher means happy. Now, Reuben came in the days of the wheat harvest. Now, remember, Reuben's the oldest of all of these. And he found some mandrakes. When was the last time you guys had some mandrakes? That's actually good. Um, It says, mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Mandrakes, the term is dude. And Dude, by the way, is a root that grows in deserted areas, and in particular in northern Israel and in the area of Syria. And it tends to be, well, it's mostly famous for being an aphrodisiac. Now, I find that a bit interesting because in the end of it all, if you think about it, what happens is is that Leah's trying to get, if this is something she's asking for, she's trying to get an aphrodisiac, which tells you a little bit of her relationship with her husband. And you just kind of feel like she's still motivated by the same thing. Rachel, the other hand, says, give me your son's mandrakes. She said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes as well? And doesn't this just sound insane to you? So Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. I said, oh, here's the deal. You can have the mandrakes. I'll have the man. What good are mandrakes without the man, is my thought. Jacob came into the field and, at, at evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, you're with me. She said, Jakey, you must come in to me, for I have hired you. All right, now which one of you men thinks this is cool now? I own you tonight. And you know what? I bought you with some weeds. <laughs> May comes come home with some flowers? Don't worry, honey, you're mine, because I got some weeds. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore a fifth son. God has given me my wages, because he has given me given my maid as my husband, because I did all that like, you know, my sister did. So he called his name Issachar. Could you say Issachar? Issachar. And Issachar, the, literally, he will bring a reward is what it means. And Leah conceived and bore a sixth son. Yeah, Leah's pretty fertile, don't you think? guess she didn't need those mandrakes after all, did she? And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband, look at this, will dwell with me. Because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun, which means habitation, or will live with me. Now, I'd like you to look at those three statements. She started with, now my husband will love me. Right? That's where it started. And then, the next statement, or literally, now my man will love me. And then the second one. Now he'll be attached to me, and the third one, okay, maybe he'll just maybe he'll just stay with me. Now let me ask you, ladies, if you were honest, how many of you have had to deal with that? And sincerely, because this is what the world teaches you, right? I'm going to give you one of those old guide talks for just a moment, single people. This is my single person talk. Hear this out. Three things. Commitment, time, intimacy. Biblically, that's the order. Listen, commitment, time, intimacy. Commitment should afford you time. If a person ain't committed, they shouldn't get any time. If they have the time, because one thing you could be sure of, time will produce intimacy. It's just that simple me tell you how the enemy teaches you intimacy might give you time and you just might get a commitment let's be honest and if that's the case every problem you've ever had in a relationship was because you got it flipped think about it you know if i could just be intimate with you at whatever level you might want to spend more time with me and if you spend more time with me you just might decide to purchase but i've heard people say who would want to buy the cow when they get the milk for free I don't mean to be crude, but it's the truth. And look at what happens with this poor girl, because it just seems to me that she's in that place. She is trying to get her husband to love her. Here's the sad part it, she's married. You'd think there was a commitment, but there doesn't appear to be much of a commitment, because she married under false pretense. And you start with this idea oh, man, maybe I could just get love from this. And then, well, maybe they'll, they'll be committed to some degree. Okay, maybe they'll just live with me. And I start thinking about a woman at a well later on and another well in John 4 that has already had several husbands and now she's just living with a man. And I bet that would be her story and how the Lord restored her dignity there at that well. Maybe that's been you. Maybe that's been you with things that are called Christian or religion, I've jumped in, and I've tried a kind of stuff, and, you know, I got my identity from this, and I hoped in the end of it all. But what you didn't do was jump into Jesus. You jumped into a politic or an ideal, and in the end of it all, you found yourself going, oh, what have I got now? Okay, Maybe I can live with this. I could live with this. Man, if your relationship with God, if your Christianity is maybe I could just live with this, you are getting ripped off. I can tell you I have served Christ, at least served Christ, for 20 years. I gave my life to Jesus Christ in 1984. And I look around the room and I think, some of y'all weren't even born in '84. I'm thinking, that means I've been born again longer than you've been born. And the beauty in a lot of this is as I look at this, I realize that there's never been a moment that that's just been ordinary. There's never been a moment where it's just been ordinary. Well, all right, I can live with this. Because good just isn't good when you're talking about the infinite God who created the universe. Jesus didn't say, I've come that you could have life so you could squeak by. He said, I've come that you would have life and that life is more abundant. And literally above and beyond what you can contain. God says, I've come so that I could pour so much life in you that you spill it all over everybody else. Spill it. So someone pumps in you and they go, whoa, what was that? And you're like, am sorry, that was life. I have a little extra. And that's what God intended. And if that's what we are as Christians, more people would want what we have, who we have. Because they're not looking for more arguments. And we're spending so much time trying to equip people with better arguments so that people could be humiliated by our talk. What they're starving for is evidence. Because I can argue somebody all day, but in the end of it all, if I don't have anything they don't, why would they want it? And I'm like, Christ gives me peace, but I'm totally you know, disheveled, and Christ will give you totally love, but I hate you. And they look and go, what? Who wants to join that club? I'm like, that's the bars look nicer than that. At least they can fake it. And the Lord doesn't want that. I mean, I look, and Jesus didn't look. I mean, the Father didn't turn to those people and say, by the way, first and foremost, call me professor. I don't read that. Jesus didn't say, well, you know, now I no longer call you servants. I, I call you slaves. Well, he says, I call you friends. But I get the idea that God's a lot more interested in raising children than he is raising theologians. And I don't say that theology is bad, because the bottom line is, if we're real theologians, we should be experts in God. And I, to be honest, if, there, if I could say it this way. If there's one person on earth that should be a Onion, that would be an expert in Suzanne, my wife, don't you think that should be me? then there might be somebody else who could learn all her stats, her height, her weight, what she went to school, all 15 of them and all the other things. And in the end of it all, they could say, well, that's, but if they've never met her, are they really the expert? I think there's a lot of people out there trying to be God experts, but I don't even think they've met them. Because you see, when you meet God, it changes you. I mean, you know, it's kind of like, look at, if you kind of, if you walked in, you know, you ever see those like perfumania stores in those places? You can't stay in there long without smelling like it when you walk out. I mean, after a while, you're kind of like, man, i got to stick my head in a thing full of coffee beans or something. And, you know, it's like, you're like, we walk in, you know, and you're like, you can walk out and after five seconds, someone's like, who you been with? they like, are like, I just was in that, oh, you're in that store. It's because just being there sooner or later just kind of gets on you. Let me ask you, what about you with Jesus? I mean, if we really are, we should be contagious, shouldn't we? And if we're not contagious, maybe we're just not infected enough. Well, what do you think this is? This is the complete opposite of an infirmary. This is the place where sick people come, I'm sorry, where well people come to get weller. Pardon me for using such a term. Because we infect each other with the love of the Lord here. And she went, this poor girl went from, maybe I could get love out of this, to, well, maybe I could get some kind of commitment to, well, I guess I could just live, maybe I'll just live with this. And, you know, the opposite is the case with the Lord, because nobody has ever committed to you like he has. It started with commitment before this ever happened, before you were born, before the foundation of the world, before anything ever happened, Jesus had already made the commitment to die for you. It was a done deal before it started. And only God can do that. See, because when God says he's going to do something, it's done. God never changes his mind. God didn't go, oops, I didn't realize that was going to happen. I meant to do it. God doesn't, nothing misses God's to-do list. It's a done deal, which means before you were born, and since he was the one who knit you, he already knew, and he's been spending chasing, all of his time is chasing you. Chasing after you, wanting desperately to be with you. Wanting to be with you. And he wants you to respond. In the end of it all, now it's our turn. Will we commit? Because I I know that if I don't commit, you know what I'm going to get out of it? I'm going to get one of those relationships that I think is lame. Only I'm the guy that's lame in the relationship. Because God's still in love with me. And I realize, oh my goodness... Man, it looks more like the Lord every time I read this. I remember the first time I read Song of Solomon, and my first thought is, what kind of guy writes a song like that where basically some girl's just head over heels in love with him? And he's, I start thinking of King Julian from the, those of you who are familiar with the, the Penguins of Madagascar, where everything's about how everyone loves him. Because the, but then I realize, in the end, of it, people go, well, this just reminds me of the Lord. And, and other, but you know, the more I read it, I realize the Lord reminds me more of the girl in the story than the king. Because there's this girl that's just like, oh, when can I be with him? And she gets beat up on the way, and she's chasing after him and all of this. And in the end of it all, she's in hot pursuit, and the king's just kind of going about his business because, after all, his legs are like pillars. And, you know, and check me out. Woo! You know, let's put another verse in there about how hot I am. And in there, and I kind of think, just doesn't sound like God to me. But then when I read the story, I realize, wow, it sounds like... Sh- Well, I mean, I don't mean to sound weird. I'm not getting like the Shacky, but it's like the Lord's like the girl in the story. Because she's constantly chasing after somebody that's so hot on themselves that they don't even realize how much this girl loves them. And I read this and I kind of get the same idea. Do you have any idea how much the Lord loves you? Do you have any idea that he would rather die than live without you? I mean that when it tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like one who walked through a field and saw a jewel so precious he gave up everything to purchase. Are you taught somehow in that you aren't here that that king that that jewels the kingdom of God and you need to purchase it? Where in heaven? Where in Scripture do you purchase the kingdom? Well, the only other answer, since it by the way, that's the fifth of seven parables we had already defined the field as the world in, in Matthew thirteen. If it's who walked through the world and saw a jewel, so well, well, that's the Lord. Who gave up everything? Well, well, that's the Lord. Well, Well, then what's the jewel? Well, you are. And you're the jewel he gave up everything to buy the whole world for. When it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame. What joy could be set before Jesus to keep him on the cross. When everyone else is saying, get off the cross and you can prove it there. You were. You were the joy that he saw. It was your face that he saw that said, if I get off this cross, I'd never get to be with this person. It was that's what kept him there. You realize all Jesus had to do was get off the cross and Satan would have lost no one. He would have had everyone. You're aware of that. The cross is what emptied hell. You could see why the and people say the enemy didn't want Jesus to go to the you know was trying to keep you know he thought he won when Jesus went on the cross according to scripture I think the enemy knew he lost when Jesus got to the cross because it was at the cross that I could walk out of hell and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail and Jesus said who's coming with and I said me how about you have you said yes let's wrap this around. Afterward, by the way, she bore a daughter. Daughter's name is Dinah, which means justice, which, by the way, is strangely foreboding. Verse 22, God then remembered Rachel. God listened and opened her womb now. It isn't like God forgot about her. The word, by the way, means now he spends a bit of time on attention to her. And so it says, she conceived now and said, notice, God has taken away my reproach. The whole point of this now is, even though she claimed those other two children by adoption, so to speak, now she says, well, okay, well, now really, no one's going to laugh at me because I got a boy. The boy's name is give me one more. That's basically what the name means. How do you like that? How would you like to be named that? Hi, what's your name? Let him add. In other words, got another one? Don't, or don't worry, another one's coming. How'd you like that name? Hi, James, what's your name? Don't worry, I got another one coming. Another what? Brother. Oh, neat. Wow. Okay. And you'd think that Jacob would know what it's like to be favored against. Don't worry, God will give me another one. And then verse 25, and this is where I think it's just interesting. She calls his name Joseph, Yoshef, which means let him add. And then in verse 25, it came to pass when Rachel, look at this, had born Joseph. Then Jacob said to Laban, now I want to get out of here. Did you notice all of those other children were born? Isn't what motivated him? But now that he has a boy by Rachel, now he's willing to go back home. How do you think Leah felt about that? Now look at, beloved, as we go to prayer on this. First of all, you need to recognize, I pray you do, that this is just an ordinary dysfunctional family like all of us are. Now, this should in no way motivate us to think any lesser of an individual like this because to be honest, the beautiful part about it is of all of these people. And I can walk you through kind of all of them, and I kind of spared it. Reuben's mentioned in 77 verses. Simeon's mentioned in 44 verses. Levi's mentioned in 170 verses. You know, and I start to look at these. Dan's in 66 verses. Naphtali's in 50. You know, Gad's roughly 40. Issachar's 41. Zebulun, I think, is 46 times. And then I get to Judah amongst all of those. you know how many times Judah's mentioned? 774. You kind of get the idea God's focusing on that boy, the one that's praised, where the mother says, now I'm going to praise the Lord. But that boy, I remind you, was the fourth child of Leah. And God who saw this unloved woman who's near the brokenhearted, who will never leave or forsake us, says, that's the one my Messiah is coming from. That's the one my son's coming from. Had she any idea that from one of her children would come the Savior of the whole world? Let me ask you, do you feel unloved? Do you feel forsaken? Do you have any idea what God's going to do? What God could do with any one of us? That from this woman, the entire world, because of this woman, because of this woman, God chose to have someone born that saved every one of you. Do you have any idea who the next quote-unquote, Billy Graham will be? The next, whatever the evangelist is. Or the next great teacher. Or the next great pastor. Do you have any idea? Maybe, just maybe, it's the person you share Jesus with because you are so in love with Him, you spill that life on Him. Could you imagine? All of a sudden, someone goes, wow, and you don't even see Him again. They pray a prayer and you hope that they really, that it's stuck in their heart and then they head off somewhere else and then the next thing you hear, there is a... There's some kind of revival taking place in Iran. And all of a sudden, this guy stands up before heaven. And you don't even know it. And you're standing before the Lord. And he's just like, well done, good and faithful. Somebody you're like, yes, that's all he wanted to hear. And God says, well, let me show you a couple things. i got a couple surprises for you. And all of a sudden, you look over. And there's like a thousand Iranians. And you go, what in the world? How are he goes, I just want, hold on a second. And stepping forward from them is a guy with a headdress on. And he pulls out and says, he hey, remember me? I prayed to receive the Lord through your preaching. And you're like, what? And God goes, hey, by the way, that goes to your account. You're aware of that, right? And then all of a sudden you go, wow, but wait a minute. And then he walks over to Sarah and he goes, hey, Sarah, there was that one day I was having a really hard day and wondering whether or not to kind of bail on the whole thing. And you said, no, 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 stick it out. God's got something ahead for you. And he goes to her account. And he goes, well, wait a minute, but but you prayed for me Later. You know, and then, wait a minute, And there was more than that, because, Daniel, you actually gave a couple bucks, a couple pounds, just to sponsor me getting to Iran, because you're like, well, get him to Iran, that's a great idea. And we didn't know that whole story. I mean, you prayed with the guy on the street one day, and then he disappeared. And all of a sudden, five or six of us all have something to do with it. And then he's like, you know what, I was listening to your thing on the radio, and, I was, and I've, been, I've been watching your website. And all of a sudden, we don't know any of that stuff. And then we stand before God, and there's this sea of people that somehow have your name on them somehow. Somehow God did something through you. And you thought, wow, I just feel like I'm unloved, and I feel like I'm barren and all this. And God goes, look, you are not unloved, and I will show you how loved you are. I'm going to change the world through you. Is that all right? And you're like, little old me. Do you think that she said big old me? I think Rachel might have played that game in the beginning until she stopped. She didn't have any kids. But then her sister's put out a six-pack. But then you look at her sister, and she's just like, you know what? I mean, I need to lie to get with this in the first place. And God's like, yeah, but you know what? You don't have to lie to me, honey. I know who you are. I'm going to change the world through you. And I want to pray right now for us. And forgive me if I've gone a few minutes long, but I don't get a couple weeks with you here. And I get, I mean, I, we have eight studies relatively a week. You know, and I'm like, I don't get any of those with you. I'm going to take a bunch of crazy people that I've yet to really meet, and now maybe they're having second thoughts. But, <laughs> but in it, it's like, look at, I honestly, sincerely, and I don't say this because I have anything to gain from this other than the honesty of telling you, I'm really going to miss you guys. So, well, yeah, you don't need, that's not, that's not, I'm not trying to elicit that, but I really am. But I really want you to know. Then in that time, you're praying for me while I'm over there. Somehow we're going to stand before the Lord, and who knows who's going to stand there with both of our names on them. Isn't that crazy? And while we're here, you know what? God's raising up some really amazing young men. There are th- things that Landon's going to be doing, things that David's going to be doing. Yeah, go to those things. Enjoy those guys. And then tell me how they did. And I just really love that. But look, at more than anything... There is a God, I remind you, who is committed to you, who wants to change the world. And he was just wondering if he had any volunteers. Are you okay with saying yes, I'll go wherever that is? I'm sure thankful because one of those led me here. And I have no regrets. Lastly, have you accepted that gift of Jesus in the first place? Because that's where this beautiful adventure begins. Will you pray with me? So Lord we led we read about 12 children <laughs> manipulative girls and people finding a girl that just wants to be loved and another girl that thinks she's wrestling with her sister by having babies we read about girls giving over their handmaids and God you took this chaos and you made a nation out of it and you know what I am so thankful as I look at the the gnarly bush that I could possibly call our family tree, my personal one, or mine and Sam's. And, And I just look at that and I think, oh, God, what you could do with... Well, one thing's for sure. There is really no excuse to say, but I came from a weird family, so I'll never be much. And I really believe that's one of the reasons why you let it be like this. This could have been a family that had never had any recorded sin in scripture or any of that. And yet, interestingly enough, you just chose to show us a very human family with real, um, just like us, times of selfish motives and times of striving and competitive spirits and, and, and times of just really feeling downright rejected and alone and, and forsaken and, and what you did with that. These are so, they're just so human like we are. And I am just so thankful. And I pray right now, Lord God, for every person in here who maybe in this Christmas season has felt a little less loved. Felt a little less wanted. And there are people talking about going out and hanging with all these people and, and going to family that are going to engulf them in gifts and kisses. And and then, and then there are those that are feeling like, like they're just going to sit and stare at a black and white television and eat canned food. and and God, I I just pray first that you would meet them and and show them your infinite love for them. And you'd show them there's no person you don't love. And God, I just pray right now for every person in this room, myself included, that we would realize how much you love us and the dignity you've restored to us at the cross because of the shame you suffered there so that we could truly Live a life clean. And I pray, first of all, Lord, if there be any in this room who have not accepted the gift of Your Son, Jesus the Christ, Father, that Your Holy Spirit would show them their need right now. And and amidst all of this talk and hoopla, if you have not accepted the gift of Jesus, that death on the cross for you to pay for all your guilt, and His resurrection to offer you that abundant life, Maybe you're not sure you can walk out of here, sure. I'm going to pray a prayer. And I ask you to listen. And if at the end of this prayer you agree with everything that's said, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be mine. So be it. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I confess to you I am a sinner. I'm faulty. I've done wrong. And you, as the righteous judge, punish all guilt. Which means you punish mine too. But I believe in your perfect love for me. You sent Jesus, your only begotten Son, to die on the cross so that all of my sin, all of my guilt, could be paid for. Just like everyone else's. Just like your scripture promised. And that he literally died, was literally buried, and literally rose again three days later, just like your scripture promised. So that I could have a new life. My guilty one left at the cross. My new one found at an empty tomb. And the relationship you offer me now where I could, in seeing this son, be attached with praise. So I pray now that you would adopt me as your own father, to make me your child, and that you would make me completely yours. You've committed to me. You've purchased me. And I say yes. Have me now in my surrender. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.